Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Come on around back Arizona. It is Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour, the first Saturday of the month, the first Saturday of 2023. Got Julie Murphy of the Arizona Farm Bureau in studio with us. If you're following along in the home maintenance calendar, you know our talking point today is Arizona leafy greens. And there's a very specific reason why we're talking about that in the month of January. Our goal with this broadcast is to connect our listeners with the local commodities coming off of our farms and ranches in real time. So as you're doing your grocery shopping for your family and friends and whatever, uh, you know, hosting and gatherings you might have this weekend you're no you're paying attention to knowing that the food you're buying is farm fresh local right here from arizona yes happy new year romy happy new year and we have to eat more of our vegetables our leafy greens because the arizona centers for disease says that only 12 percent of us get the correct amount I never have a cheeseburger without lettuce or sprouts (laughs) or relish there you go that's true That's so true. And I'm excited because I have the executive director for the Yuma Center of Excellence for Desert Ag. You kind of have to say it. Take a deep breath to say that, right, Paul? It's a mouthful. So, but, Paul, it's, but it's got the U of A logo on your card, so you're still tied <laughs> yes. to the is, extension office. It is definitely a U of A entity. It's actually a public-private partnership with the ag industry and the University of Arizona. Okay. Yes, and our guest is Paul Brierly. A good buddy that I've known for quite some time, and I think this is the first time I've had you on Rosie. I think it is. Okay. Well, welcome. And we actually, even though he's working for our land-grant university, which we're very proud of him for doing, and we love the U of A, but he has a family story. He's a farm kid like I am, so... We, I did bring a farmer guest. He's just doing a bigger, broader commitment and achievements on behalf of our Arizona farmers here, thanks to the Yuma Center, which is the easier way to say That's that, easier, right? That's easier, yep. So, Paul, give us your story, your family's farm story, all the way back to California. Sure. Maybe an unlikely story. My grandpa was an uh, immigrant from England and, and was a truck driver in the L.A. area. Um, and my dad, for whatever reason decided to get into agriculture. Um, I, he was thinking to get into the animal side, but he ended up, uh, ended up farming. And um, I think he, he and my mom did different things around, and then they ended up in Calexico, California, right on the border, uh, running a ranch there. And that's where I was born, literally on Border Road. Border <laughs> Road. Um, and then I actually grew up in a little town called Solvang, California, near Santa Barbara. And uh, my dad had was working for a farmer there and then had bought some equipment and gone out on his own. And, and uh, so he had, he had a family farming operation. And I worked with him my first 18 years of life, you know, starting at three years old, whenever I could reach the pedals or not reach the pedals and, and uh, drive the farm truck or whatever. So. And you were growing some interesting crops, some very California-specific crops. It, it was interesting. Yeah, we grew sugar beets for sugar. We grew cannery tomatoes for salsa and ketchup. Um, we grew flowers for flower seeds i don't know if you know why poppies are called poppies but tell uh, me when you harvest them they're in these little pods and you lay them out on tarps in the sun to dry and as they dry they start snap crackle Popping. pop just just like rice krispies yeah uh, how fun <laughs> uh, but yeah vegetables wheat uh carrots we we kind of everything. everything we even grew lettuce one time 
Uh, and I say that because now I'm in Yuma where we grow a lot of lettuce. Yeah. But uh, we grew this beautiful long field of lettuce, and this just gives a little insight into the difficulties of farming. It was a gorgeous field, and, and lettuce is an expensive crop to grow. When it came time to harvest, the market was just tanked, and mm. and it was going to cost more just to harvest it mm. than you could sell it for. So we dissed that crop up. And that Even was like, though it was beautiful. Oh, that's so hard. That was the only time we grew lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> and now you had said lettuce is an expensive crop to grow. Is it expensive to grow or expensive to harvest? It's Well, both. Uh, both, yeah. By the time you've harvested it these days, you've probably got $8,000 an acre into that crop. Whew. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very expensive high value crop. So, <clears throat> my next question then is, what inspired you to continue? Because farming is hard. I mean, you just it, saw this beautiful lettuce <laughs> lettuce plowed under. Maybe you had other second thoughts. Well, that's a good point. And I I was graduating from high school in the early '80s. That was a rough time for agriculture. Uh, whatever the reason, I took a detour. I uh, I went to college, became an electrical engineer, computer scientist. Um, I worked about five years in uh, in telecommunications research in the San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, and about five years is about all I could take, and and uh, headed back to agriculture. But if I was to point to one thing, on Christmas Eve it was the tradition there at, at the phone company I worked at to bring your kid to work, and and I, I didn't have kids yet, but I thought about all the time I spent with my dad in the field and working with him and everything I did, and I thought. I don't think this is right to bring a kid and say, well, son, here's my cubicle. <laughs> it just didn't seem like the right way to live. So. Sounds like a Dilbert ca- uh, cartoon. <laughs> yeah, funny you, funny you mentioned Dilbert. I don't know if you did that on purpose. but I uh, did, actually. Well, I know your story, so tell the rest of the world. So in that job, I worked with Scott Adams, who writes Dilbert. And so oh, if, you've, if you've read the Dilbert comic strip, it's about working in a cubicle farm and, and all that goes on there. And I literally worked with Scott Adams, and, uh, and that was the environment I was in. So to get back to agriculture was just an amazing opportunity. My parents had moved to southeast Arizona and, and had a – they were supposedly slowing down and had a hay business uh, there in Safford. And, and every time we visited, it was just so nice to get out of suburbia and, and get back to the rural lifestyle, and we eventually made the move. So huge switch. It was huge. Engineering. Uh, half the hay people farmer. thought it was amazing. What, what an amazing thing to do to go back to the farm. The other half thought I had lost my mind. <laughs> <laughs> but you had a strong influence, too, and that was raising your kids to kind of have pretty special experiences. I, I still say, and I know you can say the same thing, as a farm kid, there's so many unique stories, and everybody always asks me about them when I talk about my farm life because it's something that most people can't relate to. It It, it is pretty unique, and it, it gets people's interest, and, and it gives you a good varied background of, of what you're willing to do and able to do and so yeah I was really pleased that uh, we were able to raise our three kids on the farm out there and, and we ended up in Gilbert as you know working with the Farm Bureau so they got both the, the farm upbringing and the city upbringing. What was the biggest challenge shifting from engineering to the custom hay baling business is basically what you and your dad did correct? Pretty much, yeah. Um, yeah, we were a little more involved with the whole <clears throat> process of harvesting and selling and everything. But, yeah. Um, well, finances was one. Took a 50% pay cut uh, to go out there, which was, was challenging. And not just that, but it was not a guaranteed paycheck. It was uh, sometimes money was coming in and sometimes it wasn't. But uh, interesting thing it turned out was even with a 50% pay cut, life was better. I mean, we were able to live better uh, in a rural life style and, and rural settings. So that and, was that was interesting. And you had time, well, 
I don't know if I should say that because it seems like farm farmer hours are crazy hours. But you did have time to spend with your family too. Yeah, that's, in a unique setting. As I say, that's sort of a hard one to answer because yeah, when you're in business for yourself, and that was that was probably the most challenging thing is again, nothing's guaranteed. It was that's where the rubber meets the road. You do your job. Someone's got to pay you for doing your job. And when I say do your job, not your eight hours, but your what you're producing. Right. And, and uh, it, it wasn't like in business where, you know, someone you're trying to do a project with somebody and they may or may not do it for you. And it's the biggest consequence is you might not get the best evaluation on your annual evaluation and whatever. But when you're in business for yourself and you got that shingle out there, you've got to you got to earn the customers. You got to earn their their loyalty. And and uh, for yeah. the for the uninitiated. Explain what custom hay baling is. I mean, of course, we assume you're baling hay, a lot of alfalfa <laughs> and everything else, but why is this kind of un- not so much unique, but it's a critical kind of chain in our ag supply chain? Sure. What, what we did is in the Safford area, cotton was king. So all the farmers grew cotton. They typically had a couple thousand acres of cotton. And then as a rotation crop, they would grow alfalfa. It's really good for the soil. It adds nitrogen back in, and, and it was a great rotation crop. Um, so they'd have maybe 80 acres of alfalfa. That wasn't really enough to justify having the equipment, uh, keeping a market of customers and whatnot. So we actually, what we did is, is for these farmers, when they had alfalfa, we would say, you grow it and then leave it to us. And, and it would be our responsibility to, to harvest it, sell it, and give them a percentage back. So we did a little, okay. little different than just, we did some custom. And custom is where you just, they just pay you to come in and, and harvest it. And it's okay. their hay and it's, you know, whatever. But, but yeah, we took a little more responsibility and they could just wash their hands of it and, and plant the hay and forget about it till they dissed it up and went back to cotton. So you were actually marketing for we them were. then. Oh, okay. So because you're a custom, you know, you're past custom hay baling and you get the crop and you know certainly how to harvest it, why is alfalfa important to you and I and consumer Arizona? That's a great question because alfalfa gets kind of a black eye that it does use a lot of water and we have water shortages and I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But um Alfalfa, the reason it's grown is because you need it for the da- largely for the dairy industry. And, and we have a great dairy industry here that produces all our dairy products, milk and cheese and yogurt, um, done locally here in Arizona. But they can't do that without that feed supply. And alfalfa is one of the most high-protein <clears throat> inputs that they can use. And the quality that we produce here in the state of Arizona, the West in gen- <clears throat> general, is just amazing. We can get anywhere from 9 to 10 to, I've even heard, 14 cuttings in a season where in the Midwest you can maybe get... Two or three. Yeah, two or three. So <laughs> I don't understand how they can <clears throat> make it on alfalfa in other places. Yeah, right. we, we got six or seven in Safford. It's higher elevation. But, yeah, down in Yuma, it's it's 11 or 12. It's mm-hmm. amazing. So um, Nancy Kaywood, I always give her props on this one when she talks about alfalfa. She's one of our Pinal County farmers, and, of course, they do cotton, wheat, and alfalfa. She's always said... Alfalfa produces milk chocolate for you. And we all love milk chocolate. So <laughs> my my favorite thing about going to college was that uh, we had a dispenser and you can get all the chocolate milk you wanted. <laughs> so it made it great. So there's a, a lot of transitions and changes. So you custom hay baling for how many years with your dad? That was uh, twelve years or thirteen years. Okay. Yeah. Did, were you lured away from that to? The Farm Bureau family? What, you guys were already Farm Bureau members. I know that. Yeah, interestingly, my, my dad had been a county Farm Bureau president in uh, oh. Santa Barbara County. Oh. And uh, so I had that history. I remember walking around as they built the new Farm Bureau building, which is, is still in use today. I can, for some reason, remember the framing, you know, walking through the framed walls. But uh, So we had a history of Farm Bureau, but 
as I became an engineer and whatnot, I didn't, you know, I wasn't interested, but. Uh, um, Took it seriously. And, uh, yeah. So, until... so I was a volunteer leader there. Uh, okay. And, uh, and then ended up being lured away to go to work for the organization, which was great. Cool. You can find them in salads. You can find them in wraps like this one right here. What you think about that? I love them. Those leafy greens. I gotta have them. Those leafy greens. <laughs> I need them. Before we get back to our guests, I just wanted to make the point, you know, we were talking with John Pratt there about Sanderson Ford and all of their partnerships. Well, they're a partner with the Arizona Farm Bureau. Absolutely. One of the benefits when you sign up to be a Farm Bureau member for consumers, Correct. you know, we pay $60 a year. And anytime you walk into Sanderson Ford as and you show your Farm Bureau member card, it's $500 off a vehicle. Yep. So that feature right there by itself pays for your Farm Bureau member. And by being a Farm Bureau member, you're, of course, supporting your local ag. Absolutely. And they're one of my favorite member benefits and one of our most popular benefits, by the way, with the Farm Bureau family. Well, we are talking about leafy greens. Well, you need trucks to farm. Yeah, we need we need a lot of <laughs> F-150s and bigger. Uh, usually and on the farm, or farm there are bigger Ford trucks. There's a lot of areas in Arizona you drive around on the farm and you'd think all that exists are Fords. That's true. <laughs> you, you wouldn't know another brand existed. Yes. And in Yuma, they all have to be white. Yes, they all Same have to be. House. <laughs> Isn't that funny? So we do have to talk about leafy greens because that's this month's segment, and I always like to highlight First, that Arizona agriculture is a $23.3 billion industry. By the way, probably within the next two years, we'll do another update on that study. We're waiting for the latest census of agriculture that's put out every five years by the USDA. We have to have that as our baseline for assessing that because then our, I call them the A-team at U of A, they're our economists, and they crunch the numbers, and it's just a fascinating process. But that will be coming out in the next two years. But vegetable production alone with this is anywhere and Paul you'll correct me if I'm wrong anywhere from 2 to 4 billion dollars in itself as a commodity if you look at our commodity wheel on our facebook page i call it the commodity wheel it's um, a pie chart and it's got the top 16 the majority of those crops and livestock in that are our fruits and vegetables of the top 16 commodity crops in the state of arizona and the month of November, which we've passed, but we're coming around again on that month for 2023, is Arizona Leafy Greens Month. It's celebrated to kick off Arizona's leafy green season, not only in Yuma, where the majority of the leafy greens are coming from, but also Maricopa County, now Pinal County's doing a little bit more of it, believe it or not, despite some of the water challenges. We figure out how to do things as farmers and ranchers. Um, and the desert southwest is the only place in the USA that you can grow these tender crops in the wintertime, providing a fresh, wholesome, homegrown source of vegetables. So my Midwest relatives and my East Coast relatives, they appreciate that we can grow such abundance of leafy greens because they can still have their vegetables in the winter. And yeah, you can do it in the Midwest under controlled environment agriculture, but that's pretty expensive. So, Paul, talk to us a little bit about, you know, vegetables and what the Yuma Center does. Sure. And those are both very large topics. Yes. Um, I mean, the <laughs> veggies are amazing. I, I, you know, I, I had an idea, but I didn't really understand until I moved to Yuma. Um, the production there in the wintertime, and by the way, vegetables don't use a lot of water, partially because we grow them in the winter when it's cool and, and you know, they're, they're a winter crop. So um, 
but Yuma, for those that don't know, is where your your vegetables, your leafy greens come from in the wintertime, basically between Thanksgiving and Easter. If you're having a salad, it came from Yuma, whether you're in New York or Toronto or anywhere in North America. Yeah, that's it, a good point. It's Arizona or uh, America and Canada. Yeah, basically all of North America. And, and it's not a maybe it came from Yuma. It, it came from Yuma um, that time of year. So there's uh, some of the stats. There's um, I think a billion pounds of lettuce a month come out of Yuma. That's fifth, a billion. Yeah, that's um, wow. Fifteen hundred refrigerated semi trucks a day roll out of Yuma to take that produce across the the nation. Is that mostly by truck? <clears throat> mostly by truck. Yep. Fifteen hundred a day. A Don't day. go through those fast. I, my mind's like <laughs> that's amazing. That it, is. It's amazing. like one hundred and seventy million servings a day. Um, of produce that comes out of Yuma. Well, somebody's just... eating their veggies, Romy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <they're... laughs> That's not all on hamburgers. <laughs> There's obviously a demand for it. You know, and the demand varies uh, depending on if you've got a snowstorm in the east and this kind of stuff. So the price the price to the uh, you know producer varies wildly because of demand ups and downs and, and different things like that. You know, Romy mentioned the hamburger, and I just learned the other day there there are lettuces that are, are – bread to be specifically the size that a leaf of lettuce is what fits on a hamburger. <laughs> Very do, you, perfect. Do, you, do you know yes. those varieties? I don't know the name. <laughs> I gotta but, find out more. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's an amazing industry and there's there's like 150 different crops that are grown. Um, so I, I know I've given tours down there and, and people will ask, well, what's that crop? And I was I new have to Yuma. No idea. I, I didn't know, and I felt bad about that. And I, I told a farmer that story, and and the farmer said, "Oh, don't feel bad. Sometimes we can just get a bag of seed, and we're told to plant it on a certain date and grow it, and we don't know what the heck the, you know, that it is." Really? And, and uh, yeah, so there's so many different crops grown, and and you talk about the different lettuces, and then the kales, and the spinach, and the celery, and the broccoli, and and it just goes on and on and on. So you mean you don't have the uh, the wooden stick with the seed packet on there and put it on the mound? <laughs> like- <laughs> yeah. yeah, somebody knows, but. Uh, uh, certainly not driving by the field. And then there's crops that are grown for seed. And, and so sometimes you see a crop and it's like, oh, that looks like they should have harvested that a while ago. And then you realize they're letting it grow out uh, to seed. So For the next year's harvest. That's or, exactly right. And when we're shipping 1,500 trucks a day, who's coordinating all that? And a couple big uh, distribution companies that manage all that? There, there's not more than a couple, but they're, they're companies that we call shippers. And, and these are names that you see in the store. Taylor Farms, um, Church Brothers, True Leaf, um, Foxy Vegetables. These, um, <clears throat> and they're based mostly in Salinas, and they have to source these products year-round. So they have every day into, into Costco and Sam's Club and, everywhere. and all these places everywhere need it every day. Joined in the studio this morning, Julie Murphy, the spokeswoman for the Arizona Farm Bureau, something we do the first Saturday of the month, connecting our listening audience with commodities in and around the state that are being grown locally right here. Nothing, you know, for those people on the East Coast and in Canada, they're eating our uh, leafy greens every day. At least, you know, 1,500 trucks a day, that's pretty fresh. Right. But the closer you can be to your food source, right. you know, the better. And I was thinking, uh, doing a little numbers here, if you're doing 1,500 trucks a day in the winter, uh, that's on a 30-day month, that's 45,000 trucks a day. And if they're shipping a billion pounds in a month, 
each truck's moving about 22,000 pounds of lettuce. Yes. And we have to realize uh, we celebrate and I promote local all the time. But again, if my Midwest family and my family that lives on the East Coast and then my friends that live in Canada, if we're not getting enough of our vegetables, Yuma is helping us take care of that. Actually, Yuma, Maricopa County and Pinal County are helping us take care of that. And so to your figures, I've got one too, Romy. I'm not as good with math as you are. You know how much he loves these. <laughs> yes, the numbers. Yeah. Americans and Canadians eat an estimated 130 million sal- salad servings a day. And that's specifically during the winter because, again, most of the leafy greens are coming from Arizona. So, And another real fun fact, Arizona's 15 leafy greens that are covered under – what is called the Arizona Leafy Greens Agreement, the Arizona LGMA. Uh, all my colleagues in the ag interest industry that are in the leafy green industry will appreciate this. This assures stringent food safety practices. So the following 15 are endive, escarola, I hope I said that right, spring mix, cabbage, romaine lettuce, butter lettuce, arugula, iceberg lettuce, green leaf lettuce, red leaf lettuce, baby leaf lettuce, spinach, kale, chard, and radicio, I think I said that last one right. But anyway, and those a, are lettuce types. Lettuce, well, not just lettuce types. Leafy well, yeah, green. we call they're, leafy they're greens. They're leafy yeah. greens. Leafy yes. green family. Leafy green family. So they're, you're right. They're probably lettuce types. But we haven't heard about the Yuma Center yet, Paul. Tell us its purpose and why you do what you do. Sure, and it, it's. It's really been a, a neat thing to be a part of. So uh, about 10 or so years ago, we got a new dean at the College of Agriculture uh, at the University of Arizona, uh, Dr. Shane Burgess. I don't know if he's been on the show or not. but uh, He hasn't yet. I need, I you you ought to he, get him on here. Yeah, I need to get him on here. He, he's quite the thinker. He's a good guy. Uh, he, he was from – he's from New Zealand, but he was coming here from Mississippi, and he went around the state to learn Arizona agriculture, and he quickly realized – Hey, Yuma Agriculture is world class. It's just it's just amazing what's going on down here. And and they had a hundred year relationship with the university. There's a there's a, a research farm down there. And so he said, we as a university want to support this industry at the level. You know, one of the figures about Arizona, uh, sorry about Yuma uh, County is it's in the top one tenth of one percent of all counties in the country in in different forms of ag production. And he wanted to support it at that level. You know, from the university. But he was faced with budget cut after budget cut after budget cut and not able to do it at the level he wanted to. So he came has, up. Has a farmer ever had a budget increase ever? <laughs> Farm, I don't think they know what that word means. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, farming's, farming's rough in that sense. Um, so, But that, this was the university facing budget cuts and not able to provide what they wanted to do. And so he came up with this idea of a public-private partnership, and he went to the industry and said, would you be willing to support a center of excellence if it was – to focus on the, the pressing problems that you face in, in production agriculture and, uh, and, and listen to you as the farm industry as to what are those problems, what should we be addressing. And if it comes up with usable results, then you know, would you continue to support that? And if, if not, we'll call it a, a good idea and call it a day. And so, so they said yes, and they committed awesome. to, to the first three years of funding, and, uh, and I was hired, and, and this was in 2014. And... Came in with a lot of excitement and and support, but no real roadmap. And and uh, where we've kind of developed from there is to again listen to the the farm community. What problems do they face that are not being addressed? And so they drive your research, then basically. They do. Yeah. They give us a lot of information as to 
what are the problems they face? And there's a lot of challenges. You, you, when you look at a Yuma field, it's just incredibly uniform, beautiful. You know, it looks easy. Um, but boy, between weather, soil, um, birds, uh, food safety issues, crop Input disease, cost. Cr- costs, labor, uh, uh, it's an incredible challenge every day to go out there and, and make it happen. So what are some of those challenges? What projects have you and are you working on? So as far as the traditional ones, our, our two biggest ones have been irrigation management, which turned out to be timely with all the water issues that we're having. Um, soil health goes along with that, salinity in particular, because there's a lot of uh, salt that comes in on the water, and there's reasons I could get into that salt is a real issue as far as um, uh, managing. And then the other is, is crop disease. So there's a lot of diseases that atta- attack crops, and some in the soil, some in the environment. Those change as the climate changes, and so you th- think you've got it dialed in, how to protect your crops, and then something different comes in. And, um, so those have been our two biggest ones, is, is sort of figuring out you know how to produce more with less water, and then and then how to mitigate these crop diseases. But so you're actually working on improving yields. That's the bottom line. When you think of you know if you look at what they want us to work on, it, it it's like I say things like soil health, crop disease, um, uh, food safety, all this different stuff. But what it boils down to is is how can you be as productive as possible with as few resources you know inputs as possible. Right, yeah. and. Water is one of them, so we should land on it at least briefly because everybody asks that question. It's so critical for us to keep this industry healthy. But if you don't have water, so how's Yuma attacking that issue? You know, and I could I could talk for three hours on that yeah, topic, but um, but I think I'll just boil it down to say it's easy to have the perception that oh well, why are you farming in the desert? That that takes a lot of water. Uh, that seems like a a weird place to farm. Well, it turns out, especially in in Yuma, but in in Arizona in general, um, that's the place you want to produce. Um, Everything comes together there. You've got great soil. It's not not desert soil. We're farming in river valleys of the Gila River and the Colorado River that over the millennia have, you know, ebbed and flowed and deposited silt. And so you've got really great soil. You've got year-round growing weather. You've got the water supply from the Colorado River. Um, You've got a labor supply across the border. A lot of these crops need uh, a lot of labor to to hand harvest and and tend to, um, so that all comes together along with the fact that we actually don't, we virtually don't get any rain. It rains three inches a year in Yuma. That means we control everything. And so when you plant a crop in Yuma, you know that it's going to be high quality, high yield, and you know everything about it is going to be good. And and that's it's not that case in a lot of the country. And we wouldn't be able to shift this production somewhere else at this level because you can't do it in the Midwest. You can't. That's right. It. Yuma is kind of, it, it's the poster child for, you can't just grow it somewhere else. This is the place in the wintertime, the only place that you can grow at this scale, these, these tender crops. And so, um, so water, water is critical. And if the water's not provided there, we're not going to have the supply of, of fresh leafy greens in the winter. And, you know, we, we um, uh, Rosie being younger than us, I, I, I'm sorry, Romy being younger than us, I, I, he may not remember this, but, but it used to be that things were seasonal. You couldn't necessarily get certain things at the grocery store certain times a year. And, and you know, we could go back to, to that if we're not able to, to produce there. But, um, but yeah, Yuma has very high priority water rights and, and typically has thought we wouldn't be subject to cutbacks, but um, the Colorado River in particular is is in kind of dire straits right now. So we always regularly post Arizona Ag needs water. It's one of our themes for our 
outreach, Arizona Ag needs water, and you need Arizona agriculture. And I, the latest series of those posts, and we give statistics on some of the impacts of this drought on us, just so people are informed. Well, I did notice one of my colleagues from Colorado said, guess what? The snowpack is at 105%. So they've got a good snowpack. That's encouraging because that will help us a little bit. But we need, what, three to four consistent years of healthy snowpack in the Rockies, correct? We've been in a, a drought for 22 years. Right. And, and to the point where people are saying this is no longer a drought. This is just the new reality. And we don't know. We don't know. Well, and there are tree ring studies that indicate the last drought of like 1180 lasted 80 years. Uh. So it, it's, you know, if, if – we're only twenty years into an eighty-year drought. You know, we're 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 a quarter of the way through here. Yeah, we we I think we need to make the assumption there's going to be less water. If if it ends up that we get five years in a row of what's happening this winter, maybe we'll be you know we'll have one okay year, but that's not going to pull us out. Yeah, the, looking at what's happened over the last twenty years, you get an occasional spike, but but we're down at below twenty-five percent capacity in the Lake Mead and Lake Powell huge reservoirs. That the system truly is getting down to. Critical levels of not being able to produce power, not not being able to pass the water through. I mean, the Grand Canyon, the, the Colorado River and the Grand Canyon could be dry because that is the transfer between Lake Powell and Lake Mead. And, but uh, we're, we are working on technologies. So that's the, that's the exciting part. So as an engineer, I told you I went off, I took a detour, became an engineer. Uh, as, a, as a farm kid and an engineer, um, combining those two into ag tech is kind of my sweet spot. And <clears throat> just like everything else, our cars, our medicine, everything else that technology has, has made so much more possible, that's happening in agriculture. And I think people have this perception, oh, farmers are averse to technology. And it's not that, especially in these high-value crops like we have down there. The problem is it actually is really hard. <laughs> the, the tagline on my email says, uh, agriculture isn't rocket science. It's much more difficult. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, um, I agree with that. It's not, you're not in a factory where you've got everything controlled and a widget coming by every five seconds. Um, you're facing, you know, uh, the weather, the soil, the, uh, the insects, the birds, the, the labor force, you know, all these different things that, that impact it. So it's, it's really difficult, uh, to implement technology, but so much is going on now with remote sensing and drones and artificial intelligence and all, all these things are being applied to agriculture. And you can do these <clears throat> on the high value crops like is grown in Yuma. So it's really an exciting time. And one of the things, we're, we do a lot more than the, the, the two projects I told you, and, and one is getting broadband fiber That's right. out throughout Yuma County, and really excited. We've gotten literally tens of millions of dollars um, put to this effort. And part of what we're trying to do is to say that any field you go into in Yuma County, and by the way, we just got uh, funding from the governor's office, $6 million, to, uh, to put some wireless towers, because... What we need is to know that any field you pull into with your automated tractor or your automated harvester or your drone um, remote sensors you want to put out there, that it will have connection to the cloud so that you can get in for, you know, you can have real-time information and real-time input on what you should be doing with water and, and different crop management. And so I think we're, we're, you know, we're definitely getting to the point where we're going to manage things on a lot more as-needed basis and just fine-tune it even more than it's already And every time we fine-tune something, we also reduce the cost of some of the inputs because we're being more efficient with them. We're reducing water use. And I people are more 
hopeful about talking about cloud seeding and desal plants and stuff that we kind of laughed at maybe five years ago because we thought, oh, there's no way the technology is too expensive. And as it stands right now, some of that is, but we, because we continue to get these advances, there's a lot of opportunities for us to maybe solve some of our problems, even when Mother Nature doesn't work with us. I also want to give props to Mark Smith, who really had, a, and he's a Yuma produce farmer. He's grown a variety of crops over the year, and I actually grew up with him and that family in Maricopa. So he, he really put the pressure on the effort for this broadband. He did. He, he led it, and it's, it's been great. That's one of the things that our center brings is, is we cooperate with farmers, and we know exactly how things impact them and what they need and, and because they're working you know, shoulder to shoulder with us, and Mark's a great example of that. So, Paul, um, I was wanting to ask you about what you were trying to anticipate in the future of at least U of A's, our, again, our land-grant universities, research. But I got wind of a commission that you're leading up or at least have a big-time touch point on. What, what all does that mean? Is it tied into what I'm curious about? Yeah, I'm super excited about it. At the end of, of last year, since we're in a new year, um, the president of the University of Arizona, uh, Bobby Robbins, he formed a commission and asked me to chair it. And that commission is called, and it's a mouthful also, the, <laughs> the, future, uh, uh, the future of Agriculture and Food Production in a Drying Climate. So it's a, it's a presidential commission, a, a presidential cool. advisory commission on the future of agriculture and food production in a drying climate. So we're not trying to solve climate change. We're not trying to augment water. We're trying to say, if we've got less water, which seems like it's going to be the case, how do we keep agriculture productive? How do we maximize productivity even with less water? And so I'm really excited he asked me to chair that because that means that he sees the importance of bringing the resources of the university. And there's a ton of researchers and institutes and different things at the university that work on different aspects of this. And, and we're going to focus those on how do we help production agriculture stay productive? Oh, so important. And maybe that's kind of the way to approach it. We have figured over the eons, over the decades, with ever since the first person, our Hohokam uh, ancient history here, when they turned the soil and they utilized our water and canal system and stuff like that. So we've been always trying to figure out how to do farming in Arizona. It's kind of bred into us. And it's neat that you mentioned the, the tribal component because that is a place you can you can get valuable knowledge. How did right. they do it? And how can yeah. we incorporate some of that into to what we do? And, you know, I want to always give props to our farmers and the Yuma farmers specifically because we're talking a lot about the leafy greens and the growth there in that county. Uh, who's working with you based on what the center is doing? You know, we have amazing partners down there. I mean, it, it, it takes true grit to, to farm in the desert, right? Yeah. And uh, um, so we've, we've just got a variety of the industry. Yuma's a, a, a pretty neat place where it's it's a hugely competitive industry, but yet they come together and, and work together on these bigger issues. And so it's, it's, our center has been a proactive effort of farmers, shippers that I mentioned, that are the, the names you see in the grocery store, um, the seed companies, the um, 
just a Everybody. variety. Yeah, everybody's kind of pitched in and, and uh, voluntarily donates to fund our center. And it gives us a lot of flexibility. You know, what they really wanted was, was uh, a place that could be really react, proactive and reactive. You so know, across the board, if you're meeting a Yuma farmer, they're probably participating with you on some of these efforts. I'd like to say we had everybody involved, but I, I haven't. I haven't put as much focus as, as needed to get everybody involved, but uh, but you yeah, it's a, a broad cross-section. Good yeah. chunk of them. So I have to ask a question because you and I have known each other for quite some time, and that started when we were both working for Arizona Farm Bureau. You left us, but you left us for a very important purpose, just like Arizona Farm Bureau. I mean, why are you why are you still a member? You still love us, don't you? I do still love Farm Bureau. Uh, so many reasons. I mean, there's the family history, but I think it's more as I got involved and realized it's truly this grassroots organization that that listens to its members and whatever the members think the problems are and the solutions are. Farm Bureau is the voice of agriculture, and it and it has this platform to bring those solutions to the issues um, on the political realm, on the production realm, on the public. The public realm, which you know, which we're doing today, um, and then it's a it's a family. I mean, just it, it's we bring our rela- kids. We bring our kids to the meeting. Yeah, the and relation- they can be crying and screaming, and we can still <laughs> get business done at the That's county right. level. That's right. But the relationships we build all around the. I loved being a field person. I was out in all the counties in the state, and you just you, you learn how, how unique every part of Arizona is, and and uh, and to have those almost family relationships around the state. It's just wonderful. Yeah. Go ahead. You had emailed me a couple of resources, and we've put those on today's podcast page. It's uh, the Yuma's Association, the Western Growers Association, and then a case study on water efficiency. Uh, So all of those links and additional resources are on today's podcast. Uh, Because you guys have quite a ton of information, and, and that desert... Uh, DesertAgSolutions.org. DesertAgSolutions.org is, uh, you know, it, it's that's how we're going to keep going forward. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that that tries to outline the different things that we're working on, and uh, there's a video on there that talks about uh, Yuma's ag productivity and, and efficiency with water. And, that's embedded yeah. in the podcast page as well, awesome. and. Uh, I noticed John Boltz was in that video. He's been on with us before, and we were going through yeah. all of our other Yuma guests. We've had Tim Dunn, Jonathan uh, Densmore, Juan Guzman. So we've it's a our studio is a little ways away, but we've got a we've had a, a great host of uh, guests in from Yuma. We're in a small small corner of the state, but it's a it's a powerhouse down there. And you know, I would advise people as they drive through to San Diego, don't just stop and have a hamburger, but uh, but but head off the freeway a little bit and see what's going on, especially this time of year. It's amazing. And if you roll down your windows, you can breathe deep and you'll smell lettuce. That's why they call it the lettuce bowl. I love it this time of year. The winter salad bowl of the of the of country. The country. Yep. yep. Thank a- you, Paul. Azfb.org to sign up for your Farm Bureau membership. Sixty dollars a year supports local agriculture and comes with a ton of great benefits to the homeowners. We've had a great time this Saturday morning, starting off 2023 the right way. Julie Murphy with the Arizona Farm Bureau and Paul uh, Brierly with the Executive Director of the Yuma Center of Excellence for Desert Agriculture. Did I get yeah, that right? You Thank you it. so much for having me on today. I really appreciate it.